Dose of Leadership Podcast, Episode 41. Welcome to another episode of the Dose of Leadership Podcast, the show that brings you inspiring and educational interviews with today's most relevant and motivating leaders. Each episode is dedicated to highlight real-life leadership and influence experts who dedicate their lives to the pursuit of the truth, common sense, and courageous leadership. And now, here's your host, Richard Ryerson. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the show. I am Richard Ryerson. Thanks for tuning in to another episode. Hey, before we start the interview, I'd like to ask a couple things of you. If you could, please help spread the word about this podcast. We just got accepted on Stitcher. Stitcher is a great app. If you don't have iTunes or if you don't have an Apple product, Stitcher is a great resource. It does work on Apple, too, but it's a great source to listen to this show. I'll have links to it on my website at doseofleadership.com. But you can go to Stitcher, and you can search for Dose of Leadership now, and you can listen to it. It's a great app, especially to listen on your Android device or on the web. Anyway, it's a great uh, resource to listen to the show. So please spread the word about Dose of Leadership podcast. Go to Stitcher and uh, search for this show and listen to it there. Also, check out my sponsor, audible.com. Again, you can download hundreds of thousands of books. You can download a free audiobook in a 30-day trial at no obligation. Go to doseofleadership.com slash audible and you can sign up for a free 30-day trial and also down, download any of their audiobooks onto your smartphone, your smart device, and uh, listen to catch up while you're reading, while you're exercising, driving to work at any time. So again, thanks for tuning in. Thanks for continuing to give me the feedback. I love hearing from all of you again, and here's the interview. Well, I'm so pleased to have on the show Mark Sanborn. He's an author, a speaker, a motivator. He's a president of Sanborn and Associates, an idea lab for leadership development. He's been listed as one of the top 30 leadership experts in the world. In addition to his experience leading at the local and national level, he's written or co-authored eight books and is the author of more than two dozen videos and audio training programs on leadership, change, teamwork, and customer service. He's presented well over 2,500 speeches and seminars in every state and a dozen countries. He's a member of the prestigious Speakers Roundtable, 20 of the top speakers in the world today. He holds a certified speaking professional for the Nas- from the National Speakers Association and is a member of the Speaker Hall of Fame. You've probably known him from his book, The Fred Factor, How Passion in Your Work and Life Can Turn the Ordinary into the Extraordinary, a Wall Street Journal, New York Times bestseller. He just kind of followed that up in the last month with Fred 2.0 and countless other books. Mark, thanks for coming on Dose of Leadership. Are you ready to give us a dose today? <laughs> Richard, I am. Thank you for having me. Gosh, you know, such an impressive resume. You're, you know, as a you know, up-and-coming speaker myself, I'm always excited to talk to Someone's been in the speaking game as long as you have. How did you get started, and what made you so interested in the topic of leadership? Well, I begin by saying that I think the success to speaking or anything we do in life is more often about tenacity than raw talent, and Mm. certainly that was the case for me. I started at a very young age in in speaking competitions. That's what got me interested in speaking. Uh, I was a a rural farm kid, grew up on a farm in northeast Ohio, and entered a speech contest when I was 10 and frankly did such an abysmally bad job. (laughs) So humiliated that I decided I really wanted to figure out, you know, how to be an effective speaker. And that's not only what got me interested in professional speaking and communicating, but it was through that back door that I got interested in leadership because I realized the power that words have to influence. Now words by themselves can easily be, you know, style over substance. Mm -hmm. So as leaders, we have to 
both, you know, be congruent with what we say and what we do, as well as who we are. But my initial interest in uh, leadership was really, uh, was really, you know, piqued by uh, my public speaking and later my leadership involvement in youth organizations like the Future Farmers of America. So how'd that get in, how'd that kind of equate into writing? When did you write your first uh, book and did that come naturally or was that always in your plan? It's funny how life works. Sometimes we do things without any real knowledge of how they're going to benefit us later. And I've always been a, a big proponent of the idea, you know, do lots of things, try it, do it. If you like it, keep doing it. And that's what I've tried to do with my two boys. My wife and I believe that, you know, you really don't know what you like or don't like until you've sampled a lot that there is to do in life. And so when I was in college, um, I was getting a degree in agricultural economics, which is a pretty uh, specific uh, area of expertise. But I worked one summer as an intern for a, uh, a rural publication called The Ohio Farmer. And it was interesting because even though my career later took me into sales and marketing, that particular summer, I wrote some articles. They were nice enough to give a, a kid without a lot of experience a chance to go out and write some feature articles. And I started to see the connection between the spoken and the written word. And, and they're two different skill sets. And I think it's so important for people to realize that being good at writing will help make you a better speaker and vice versa. Mm -hmm. But being good at writing won't necessarily make you a good speaker any more than being a good speaker makes you a good writer. You have to learn both skill sets. Right. But as a result of that, and then later when I was in sales and marketing uh, for a publishing company, you know, having to write at the time, sales letters and later, of course, you know, emails and other forms of communication. I think I, I just got better again through tenacity, through doing it a lot. And in the late uh, 80s, early uh, 1990s, I realized that one of the best ways I could build my speaking business, which to me has always been driven by expertise. You know, all businesses are driven by expertise and it's about what we know. And then if you're a professional speaker, your ability to communicate it well. I realized that writing a book would help me uh, in that pursuit. And I'd written an article in, in an old-fashioned publication called a newsletter. Remember those? Yeah. <laughs> you folded them in threes and put them in an envelope and put a stamp on them. I had sent out a, uh, a newsletter that made its, hands, uh, made its way into the hands of a very, very small publisher in New York City who sent me a letter and said, would you like to write a book about this? And the book became Team Built, Making Teamwork Work. That was my first book. I'm not sure how many people read it. It was uh, a far and away, not a bestseller. Mm -hmm. But it, it did, you know, get me into writing. And, and I started writing more books and more training programs and later blogs and other things. And all of that added together to uh, to bring me to where I am today, having written eight books and having contributed to, oh, probably another 10 or 15. Wow. What, what year was that? If I, can... I think Team Built came out in 1990 or 1991, and I really didn't have my first bestseller until The Fred Factor was released in 2004. So more proof that tenacity uh, rules the day. Yeah, and it's... It you know, 1990, I think back, it doesn't seem that long ago, but it really was. And I, I guess when you look from a technological standpoint and trying to publish and write, it's, it's so different back in 1990, wasn't it? I mean, it's so much easier in a sense to, to get things produced, maybe a little bit harder to get 
noticed or, or get your voice heard maybe because there's so many people doing it now. But um, how different well, was writer, it? Go ahead. The writer of Ecclesiastes in the Old Testament said, you know, of the making of many books, there is no end. You know, they didn't even have a printing press back then, and they already had, you know, uh, a lot of books being churned out. Yeah. And so I think that the uh, technology – uh, print on demand and the ability to self-publish is easier than it's ever been. And on the surface, that's a great thing because it gives more and more people an opportunity, like blogging does, to share their ideas. Yeah. The downside of that is it's harder and harder to get heard. Yeah, it's, it's, you know? it's so much noisier now, I guess, is the right way to look at it. It's hard to get noticed. And where I think that affects leaders is, you know, we live in the age of hyperbole and exaggeration. Mm -hmm. I think some people have taken this shortcut that says if I, I just make these crazy proclamations and promises, you know, I'll get heard. Well, you do get heard, but you often don't get heard for the right reasons, or then you find out you can't deliver. Yeah, you can't sustain it, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. So the leader's credibility is undermined when he or she uh, turns to really creative writing and people are disappointed with their uh, inability to deliver the results. Yeah, the content, is, you know, delivering good content still, you can't get away from it. You got You can't escape from that reality. You have to deliver good content. And speaking of your content, I mean, coming, you know, how, when I first came across you, obviously, I want to talk about the Fred Factor and Fred 2.0, but what I, what I first noticed you, because it was core to my central belief, and it's when you don't need a title for genuine leadership. That's a huge part of my belief system and a huge part of what I speak about. Tell me about how you came across that and why you believe, you know, leadership isn't a title. It's a consistent theme on this podcast. Richard, that's something we, I think, all intuitively know, but it didn't really crystallize for me until I was having coffee with the head of a technology division for uh, a company in South Denver. And, and I tell this story in the book about uh, him telling me that he had this mission-critical project, and he thought of all the people on his team who might be able to lead it, and he went to uh, one of the individuals, and to protect the guilty, we'll call that person Bob, and he said, Bob, I'd like you to lead this project. And one of the first questions Bob said is, you know, well, I, I suppose if I say yes, you'll make me a director. Now, at this particular company, you know, director was the coveted title. Mm -hmm. That was kind of the, the prestige title. And my friend was a little taken back because he didn't know if Bob thought he needed the title to get the job done or he should get the title as a reward. But in either case, he was really uncomfortable and he retracted the offer from Bob. Hmm. So, so then he went to a woman who he thought could do it, and her name was Gail. And this woman was not a full-time employee. She was a contract employee. So he had a little different proposition for her. He said, you know, this is a very important project, but I've got to tell you, even if you say yes, I, I can't give you a title. You know, you're a contract employee. You're not a full-time employee here. And she said, well, that's fine. You know, I don't need a title to be a leader. And that's what crystallized the title of the book. And the subtitle, of course, is how anyone anywhere can make a positive difference. And in the book, I talk about two kinds of leaders. You know, big L leaders are men and women with titles. You know, they've been charged by their employer to lead others. You can tell who they are by the org chart. But little L leaders are, are people who may not have a title or a formal uh, mandate, but they're just people who are always glad to make a positive contribution, make a positive difference when they can. And the interesting thing, Richard, is I think we kind of all know that having a title doesn't necessarily make you a leader any more than, you know, living in a cookie jar makes you a cookie, right? right. 
but what I think we forget is, is that just because you don't have a title, it should not prevent you from leading. And, and I'm defining leading as making a positive difference or making the world better for your colleagues or your customers or, for that matter, the people you, you live with. Yeah, I've always said that, you know, I get this from the Marine Corps, but they they were so adamant and so good at training everyone to think and act like a leader. And it's really the key ingredient to small unit leadership. Everything is revolves around small unit leadership, and everybody's giving a certain degree of leadership responsibility and accountability. You know, varying on your position, and it varies in 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 the responsibility depth. But at the same token, you are still obligated. You're told everybody's told you're obligated to think and act like a leader. And and I see that a lot in in the four corporate places I've worked since I got out of the Marine Corps. It's consistent. Everyone, you know, you ask the question, "How many of you consider yourself a leader?" And uh, not everybody raises their hand. And maybe a few here and there, or maybe they're embarrassed to raise their hand, but. You know, I always turn it around them and say, hey, how many are parents? How many are brothers and sisters, aunts and uncles? And you look at it in that context, we all are going to get called at some point, regardless of title. We're all going to get called to lead in some capacity. And um, and I think one of my goals and my one of my missions has always been to try to get people to understand that it's not about the larger-than-life charismatic. It's not about the title. Um and a lot of the leadership in organizations, I saw it in the Marine Corps and I see it in, in corporations, a lot of the real leadership really does happen from the middle and below. Do you agree with that? Well, I do. And I think there are a number of points I'd just like to tag on to from what you said. The first is that uh, I think the best leaders create an expectation among those they lead mm. that they are expected to take responsibility. Yeah. You know, responsibility is different than taking action. Taking action is going through the motions. Yep. It, it's the classic, I did what I was supposed to do. When you take responsibility, you take ownership for the outcome. You know, you take responsibility for the result. Yep. And when people know that that is an expectation, that that's part of the expectation, the next level up for me is when people go from seeing that as some kind of an oppressive obligation, you know, well, I have to, to, to a terrific opportunity that they get to. Because, you know, it, it's the same thing viewed differently. An obligation that you have to do, if you accept it as an opportunity to learn or to grow or to make a difference, you convert it to an opportunity. Nothing changes except yeah. the attitude that you bring to what you're doing. And leaders are so good at helping people uncover the meaning in their work. Uh, I, I guess probably in the past, I was guilty of saying, you know, that leaders help, you know, infuse meaning into work, but I really don't think we, we infuse meaning. I think we uncover it because at, at some level, all work has meaning. It, it's related to, to who we do it for, why we do it, how we do it. And I think leaders are really good at helping people go beyond going through the motions, you know, the obligation of, well, another day, another dollar, this is what I've got to do, to saying, wow, this is very cool. You know, I, I've got an opportunity to make a difference in this industry or this profession or in this customer or client's life. I like that. That's a, that's a really great, subtle, but very powerful point. I like that, you know, okay, so it is an obligation, but let's turn it around. It really is an opportunity. You get people to understand that, hey, this is a really cool opportunity. That's when you can really start seeing, uh, well, that's really when the leadership culture starts to develop and blossom. I really like that. I've never looked at it in that kind of subtle way, but you're absolutely right. Well, it takes people from compliance to commitment. Yeah. You know, and I think mm -hmm. that's another way we can identify, you know, using your title and your, your position on the org chart versus your skills to get people to do things. When people do things because they have to, because they report to someone who can 
reward them or punish them, you know, that's compliance. And we all know that, especially if you have kids, we all know that people always perform better when they're committed. Absolutely. They always do a better job when they want to and rather than they have to. So I think what leaders do, and whether they have a title or not, big L and little L leaders, I think they have that ability to, to create commitment. I, I've had some tremendous influencers in my life that had no power whatsoever over me. What they had was connection. You know, I knew they cared about me. I knew they were interested not only in my best interests, but in the, the results that we were able to achieve together. And, and, and you see that in the military, you know, the, the, the people who, or you see that, and it's a tragedy, but yesterday, uh, with the bombing of the, uh, the, uh, Boston Marathon, mm-hmm. the first responders that ran to the danger, not away from it. Yeah. And that's always so inspiring to me. I mean, it's tragic that that happens. I know, right? But it's, it's so inspiring that most people, their first instinct is get away. But there, there's that person that says, I've got to help, even though it may cost me my life, it may cost me greatly. And, and they rush in and they don't do it because they have to. You can't make people. No. Do. It's just kind of an instinct. Yeah. It's just kind of inbred in them or something, or there's something part of their core beliefs or their values that, that makes them do that. Exactly. I know it's always awe inspiring to watch that. And you do. And I watch those tapes and you see who kind of goes away and he's just, it's just amazing to watch someone don't even think about it. And they're not even thinking about another explosion going off. They're not thinking, they're just, all they're thinking about is, is helping. And it's always, you always got to wonder what would you do, you know, and, and, um, it, it's impressive to see. Well, I think, and by the way, I think that one of the things that, <laughs> I've learned the hard way is we need to anticipate the scenarios of life because if you, if you're left to your instincts and you've never had any predisposition or any training, if you've never given it any thought, it's easy to make the wrong decision. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think as leaders, you know, that's why the crucible of leadership is experience. You know, you can read and study leadership, but until you have led something, you know, it's like trying to learn to ride a bike by reading a book about bicycles or a magazine, you know, uh, on bicycling. You still have to get on the bike and you fall off and you scrape your knees and you, you bloody your, your, your shin. But you also then over time develop those instincts we were just talking about so that it, it becomes instinctive rather than a, a chosen behavior. And yeah. I think too many, too many leaders don't stop to ask, what would happen if there was a downturn? Would we? let people go? Would we cut back on workforce? Would we freeze pay increases and benefits? And so when it finally does happen, they're flat footed. I think anticipation, you know, scenario planning is kind of the the convoluted term that we used to use, but being able to anticipate all the things that might happen and thinking through, if this happens, what will I do? I think that's an underutilized leadership skill. That's a great point. You know, and of course being from the aviation side, you know, you do, that's all you do is cut that constant training, thinking about the what if, right? And then when you do get faced with something, it is almost instinctual. And it's the same. And by the way, people haven't seen the movie Flight. It's not the most cheerful movie they'll ever see. But as, as we were talking before we we began the podcast, I have a great love for aviation. I'm a pilot who, who isn't current, doesn't fly anymore. But one of the things about that is the tragedy of the movie is that the, the, the hero is also the anti-hero. Right? right. And he, he saves the flight. And, uh, you know, one of the, the lines in the movie is, you know, they tested, what was it? 14 other pilots on the mm-hmm. simulator. None of them could do it. And then you find out that he was legally drunk when he saved the flight. That's the hero anti-hero part. Right. But what that begs, what I find fascinating is someone who studies peak performance is, Again, I realize this is fiction. This is not based on a true story. 
But there really are people who, even when they are at some level impaired by stress or circumstance, can still instinctively do incredible things. And that is from years and years and years of practice and anticipation. They didn't just wake up and get lucky. Yeah, well, you know, Sully Solomir, when they was talking about land on the Hudson, and that's what he said, because this was 38 years or whatever the number was of, you know, all that experience led up to that moment. You know. Yeah, and, and, and there's a real-life story and a much better one because it, there's no anti-hero involved. And I, I thought it was interesting. He said that they wasn't, – wasn't the first thing they said after they landed was that wasn't as bad as we thought it <laughs> Yeah, yeah, something to that effect, yeah. I thought it was amazing too that, you know, in the, kind of the leadership vein, and I've used this in some of the, my presentations too. I put up a quote, and it was from him, and it says, you know, it was the most sickening falling through the floor – bottom pit of the stomach feeling I've ever had in my life and he was petrified but you wouldn't know it you know so I think that whole compartmentalization piece of pushing that fear down and still acting is a great part of leadership and leadership presence yeah I've got a 15 year old son and here in Colorado where I live you can get your learner's permit at 15 you have to have a, an adult uh, in the car with you right but one of the things that worries me is I and I try to teach this to my son but ultimately he will learn it only through experiences, intuition. Mm -hmm. I, I've explained to him that you can sense someone who's going to do something stupid, and I can't explain it. But after, you know, having, I grew up on a farm, I started driving tractors and, and trucks and automobiles probably at the age of eight. So if you consider I'm 54, I've got a lot of years of experience. But I, there have been times I just intuitively knew someone was going to switch lanes right. without signaling abruptly and was able to, to initiate my response, not react. And that's what we all hope for. You know, we hope that the experience is a kind teacher and doesn't extract too high a price. But ultimately, you learn things that, you know, aren't even explainable that and it comes from immersing yourself in the behavior or the what I call the practice of leadership, not just the study of leadership. Yeah, you know, Malcolm Gladwell talks about that kind of instinctual peace and blink, I think. I think that's the name of the book. Have you read that, Blink? Yes, I have. Uh -huh. The 10,000-hour rule? Yeah. He kind of talks about that. But even, you know, we don't give ourselves enough credit to that. Our, our instincts are way more powerful than we give ourselves credit for. Yeah, and it's not that we don't know. It's that we don't know at a conscious level. Yeah, right. Unconsciously or subconsciously. I think people think that, you know, it's kind of a voodoo, mysterious, woo-woo-wah-wah thing and, and there may be a little bit of that, but more more often than not, it's it's cumulative experience that our brain has acted mm -hmm. on and we didn't even realize it. Yep. You see that a lot in aviation too. It's like, yeah, there's something's not right here. And you're always taught to listen to that. You know, if you don't feel like something is, you know, and it's, sometimes it's just a little switch or something or something you missed on the checklist, but uh, you, you learn to trust that kind of nape of the neck type feeling or gut feeling because there's a reason you're right because that there's – a subconscious experience um, muscle that's getting exercised somewhere along the line through that through those years of experience. Let's Certainly talk, agree. Let's talk about the Fred Factor. I mean, what an, a success for you, obviously. And I know that you've probably you, you came out with Fred 2.0. What was it, March 15th that we came out just last yes, month? Last yeah. Month. Um, what a great what book a great and book. some great examples. What I love about it are the the stories that. Um, let me share when I was when I was reading Fred 2.0 last night, I was thinking about, maybe it was about a year ago, I was going through the Taco Bell drive-thru. And, you know, it's just a normal drive-thru. 
And I had one of the most amazing customer experiences that I've ever had at a fast food restaurant. I know that sounds so goofy, but what struck me was it's so rare when someone does something so it, 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 it was extraordinary because it never happens, but it was so simple and it was, he was just so energetic, so nice. I just had to go in and tell the, the manager what a great employee he had. And it, and it's so simple. If more people acted like that, what, you know, how great business would be, how great life would be. I mean, is, that's kind of the impetus of Fred and Fred 2.0, right? Well, the, the underlying theme of the Fred factor and my books subsequent, including Fred 2.0, is this, and that is that nobody can prevent you from choosing to be extraordinary. Yeah, I love that. And I did an interview earlier today where I kind of vocalized something I hadn't really put into words before, and that is you really have to choose to be a Fred. Nobody can make you. Right. They can encourage you. They can reward you, recognize you, train you, and all the rest. But it, it ultimately comes down to, to a choice. And uh, I think too many people place the locus of, uh, of, of responsibility outside themselves. They say, well, you know, my, my parents, uh, they weren't very nice. Well, as you know from reading Fred 2.0, which is an entirely new book. It's not an update yeah, or revision right. Fred, mm-hmm. Fred Factor. As I share with his permission in the new book. Fred Shea had, had very petty, self-centered parents. They were very selfish. Yep. And Fred became an extraordinary giver in reaction to that, not because of it. And, and I often say in my work with leaders, leaders succeed not just because of, but in spite of. I mean, anybody can win when the odds are good, the economy is rocking, yep. everything is, is working to their advantage. But the real test of leadership, going back to what we just talked about, is the Landing on the Hudson River, you know, it's that what do you do in a pinch when you can still win when others would have failed? And it's that, I think, that separates the great leaders from just the the ordinary leaders. Yeah. Do you get a lot of, uh, I know in Fred 2.0, you were talking about how you were at the airport and um, you were kind of witnessing a delay with weather, you know, and those poor gate agents, you know, they just, they the whole wrath of, all the frustrations from the customers always come down on them, but the, this particular gate agent was displaying some extraordinary and great customer service. And I think the guy next to you had said, what was the exact quote, that we need more Freds like her or something to that effect? Yeah, okay. at least she's a Fred. I mean, nobody else uh, that for that particular airline at that particular moment was taking the situation very seriously or being very helpful. But this one woman was doing her absolute best, keeping people informed and, and being empathic. And, and he was muttering about her being a Fred, which, of course, you know, caught my attention. And, and the long story short is he was familiar with the book. They used it at his company. And, and then he went on to ask, you know, the two questions, really, that, that propelled me because he wasn't the only one to, to ask to write the new book. And that is, you know, whatever happened to Fred? And I wanted to update people. Fred's doing great. And I wanted to give them a little more insight into the, the person. And then number two, you know, how do we maintain this? How do we keep it going? That's why we, we subtitled the book. Uh, uh, new ideas on how to keep delivering extraordinary results, because that's the real challenge. I mean, doing the extraordinary periodically or occasionally is challenging, but consistently going above and beyond the call of duty. You know, it takes ideas, it takes encouragement, and, and that's really what I wanted to address in Fred 2.0. I love the chapter where you talk about raise a Fred Jr. You know, <laughs> you know talk about that with me. Well, as a parent, it dawns on me that the only thing better than an adult embracing these ideas, this philosophy, is is when a, a young person does. 
I was fortunate because a lot of these ideas I didn't know at the time because obviously I, I'd not written the book. But, you know, these principles I learned in, in 4-H and FFA and vocational education yeah. and through some good teachers. And I'm, I'm so gratified that so many schools, uh, secondary, even elementary schools to, to colleges have integrated the Fred philosophy into some of their coursework. And so I... I really always wanted to write a book called uh, My Postman's Name is Fred, you know, mm -hmm. kind of a kid's book. Yeah. And my publisher of The Fred Factor, for any number of reasons, never wanted to pull the trigger on that. So I thought, well, I'm going to sneak in a <laughs> I'm going to sneak in a chapter in the new book so that if you're a parent or a teacher, you've got a, a few ideas on what you can do to get people, get get kids, young people to think about and practice these same principles. And, and it's about having discussions and, and literally like you teach anything. It's about awareness. It's about skill development and it's about reinforcement. Well, it's a great, both, both books are great. And what I love about them is, and I love about your writing is that it's, uh, it's this chock full of common sense. It's what, and I always think it's a testament of a remark of a good book when I read it and I'm going, well, yeah, duh, I know that. And that's what makes it great because it's, it's just a, a constant reminder of the simplicity and the common sense that's still out there and, and what, what to do, what's right. And that's what I think is great about both of the books, particularly Fred 2.0. What it hit me last night is like, yeah, this is a common sense book. I think you should be very proud of, of what you've accomplished with that one. Well, thank you. And it's all very story driven. And yeah. I'm unfortunate because so many people have either shared stories or I've observed. And, you know, if I have any secret, uh, as a writer or a good communicator, it's I try to pay attention. You know, I, I try not to let the things that I see or, or experience get lost on me, and then I write them down and share them with others. Because if it if it inspires and helps me, I I have confidence that maybe it can inspire and help others. Yeah, great. It's a great piece of work. Well, Mark, you're easy to find on the internet, but look for uh, always sake of um, at, at the end of the interviews, how can people find you? Well, if they want to read for free, I'm not selling them anything. The first chapter of the Fred Factor. It's called the first Fred I ever met. They can go to fredfactor.com and download that for free. And there's some other resources, free resources at that website. The, the mothership, which really gives them access to any of my books, my blogs, my tweets, all that I publish, and I publish almost on a, on a daily basis somehow, uh, they can go to marksanborn.com. Just mark, M-A-R-K-S-A-N-B-O-R-N.com. And finally, if they just want information about the new book, Fred uh, 2.0, they should go to fred2book.com, F-R-E-D, the number two, fred2book.com. And between those three websites, they'll, uh, they'll get access to to more information than they uh, they probably dreamed of. Yeah, you're pretty easy to find and got a great, uh, easy-to-navigate website, so I appreciate that too. I mean, uh, a lot of great resources out there. Well, Mark, and again, I'll have links when I put the post of this on my website. Um, there'll be links to all those things that you mentioned. So, well, Mark, guys, it's a, what a great thrill and a great honor. And I'm glad to have, uh, have met you and, and have you come on the show. I appreciate you taking time out of your busy schedule to come on Dose of Leadership. Well, my, my pleasure. Keep up the great work you're doing there, Richard. I, I, you know, you, you interview a lot of people with a lot of great ideas. And I think that, you know, successful people are always looking for good ideas and, I know I, I listen to uh, the interviews that uh, you've done, and, and I'm, I'm sure you'll do great interviews in the future. So keep up the great work, and thank you for, uh, for letting me be on the show. Thanks, Mark. It's a, it's a privilege and an honor. We'll talk to you soon. 
Richard invites you to become a part of the Dose of Leadership community. Visit doseofleadership.com and sign up to receive his free Common Sense Leadership ebook, a guide that highlights how all of us can learn to become calm, confident, consistent, and courageous in all aspects of our lives. Richard is also available as a speaker for your next event. Richard specializes in practical leadership and change management. He has a philosophy of inspiring everyone to think and act like a leader, which is based on timeless natural principles and common sense. You can get more info by visiting doseofleadership.com.